or even I love hearing stories of uh, people first meeting and hanging out here at Hope because they met in the service and then decided to grab lunch together or get coffee together. Um, even joined, there's some stories of some people joining small groups because they got invited uh, during this time. Love it. Uh, it's so good to see you. My name again is Drew. I'm glad you're here with us. Um, one of the Easter traditions, or this time of year that I remember, happens today, which we call Palm Sunday in the church tradition. And we're going to look at that a little bit today. One of the traditions, though, is I, when I grew up, when we go to church, um, this is not a picture of me, but we would, uh, uh, these beautiful ladies here are, are holding something that we would be given. I don't know if any of you grew up with this tradition. When we walked into church on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, it was kind of like a, a little opening act to Easter. We all got a palm branch. Now, some churches we went to as a kid, uh, it would be like an actual, it would look like a palm tree kind of, but usually it would just be these sweet uh, whips, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, you gave my brother and I these, and we're, you know, nine and six years old, and um, sometimes you go to Sunday school, and they do a craft where you had to, like, uh, you'd bend them into, like, a cross shape, but we never, ever wanted them bent into a cross shape, because it really messed up the strength of the whip. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it, that felt like after church, all it was was, like, kids running around, hitting each other <laughs> with palm is, you know, part of the tradition, an ancient tradition. Um, we did it, though, right? If, if, you, if you maybe don't know, because of the tradition uh, that we see in Scripture when Jesus enters Jerusalem, which starts Holy Week, a week where Jesus uh, interacts with people all over Jerusalem who, who gathered there for a, a really important holiday, a really important occasion, which we're, we're going to get into here. But it, it's... Um, we had palm branches in our church because the, in scripture we hear that they laid branches down underneath him. He rode in on a donkey uh, and pe- crowds gathered and, and, and uh, yelled and sang to him. We're going to look at that in a little bit here. And people would throw their clothes down, their cloaks down or branches down to cover the ground as a way to almost like make it a royal entrance for this person of Jesus. And so we do that on Palm Sunday, remembering that moment, kind of getting acted out. In fact, even as a kid, sometimes we all got to like walk in together singing Hosanna, Hosanna. Um, I remember that being really a cool uh, experience. I mean, it sticks in my head. There's lots of Palm Sunday traditions throughout the church. It is a really important holiday or important moment because it signifies kind of the beginning of this week where we're really considering thinking about this pinnacle moment as a Christian in the church, that Jesus has come, and this is the week that leads up to his death on a cross and him rising from the dead as we celebrate Easter. A lot of traditions are are really fascinating. Uh, One is that people use palm branches, or all types of branches, actually. Uh, A lot of times, whatever is their local uh, flower or tree, And, and in some parts of the world, it's not called Palm Sunday. It's called whatever the kind of tree is, you know, Oak Sunday or Maple Sunday, it's not that, but wherever it is, which is really kind of interesting to think uh, you could go to church somewhere else in the world and they might say, hey, it's, you know, a dandelion Sunday and, and they're all going to get whatever it was because the idea was, right, they had something that was there that we'd lay in the ground to make the ground uh, this, this kind of red carpet. In Germany, uh, there's areas where they actually have these giant wooden uh, statues of Jesus on a uh, donkey and they actually wheel them through town. Sometimes the the presiding like bishop or the, like the, the most senior um, priest in town would pull this Jesus and they actually acted out. Like the Palm Sunday, the whole town might come out and they might pull Jesus through town and they might really act it out. Like people might throw palm branches in the streets 
uh, to kind of get to see Jesus come through. I think that'd be kind of cool to get to act that out together in town. In some parts of the world, they actually have Easter witches that go around this time of year, and they will exchange, in some places, palm branches for candy. It sounds a little bit like another holiday. Uh, like you're getting, they're double dipping on the Halloween. But um, these kids will go around dressed as witches and they will exchange things for candy or treats, uh, which I think, you know, way to go. Whoever thought of that one is keeping it alive. It's an opportunity to celebrate again. In some places, this is, a, this is actually a grave site. In some places, they actually, on, uh, this, this, on Palm Sunday and this week, they go and decorate graves to remember the death of Jesus, remember the tomb that he was put in. So there's all sorts of traditions that are connected. In some places, actually, the flowers used in the service that are taken for Good Friday and put on the, on the graves. What it, kind of All of it to point us back to this moment in time, in history, uh, when Jesus walks into Jerusalem as we get ready to, to celebrate Good Friday, to see his death and his resurrection. We're going to look uh, a lot today at this. I think it helps us understand this passage read. This is a painting <clears throat> done in 1865 uh, of something that happened in Moscow for many years uh, and where everyone would parade through the streets uh, and depending on who uh, kind of was in charge, <laughs> they would walk through the streets acting out the Palm Sunday story. They'd actually dress a horse in white uh, linens and they would march through the streets um, this picture depicts them going from like the great basilica, the great church there to the Kremlin kind of center of their, uh, the power and the government. You can see there's cloaks on the ground and I love it. It's a very vivid, very cool, cool picture of that. This moment in, on Palm Sunday, a lot happened to get up to this moment historically. To, a lot happens to understand kind of the people who are maybe there in the streets. Uh, we get a little picture of it. We're gonna look at it. Um, and I think it help, will help us understand a little bit of the passage we're looking at in the book of Romans. We're in Romans, looking through it, and we are in the middle of chapter two, continuing to look at uh, this book of Romans that for the first few chapters, about three chapters, we're gonna hear about really the bad news, which will make the good news hopefully really good. Um, it's a chapter that outlines Paul introducing himself, the one who wrote this, Paul giving us a great thesis of the power of the gospel is the one that changes us. Faith in what Christ has done is what changes us. And then he turns to explain to us how, what, what sin is and really what the, the real issue is and why we need this story of Jesus coming in. It explains how we exchange life for death, how we ex exchange created things for a good creator, that we turn our worship away from God and what that brings on us is wrath. What it brings is death. It brings darkness and sin, uh, which breaks us, right? It has broken us. And so we hear, we've heard that story over and over in the last month or so as we've continued to look at Romans. And today he's going to continue to just reiterate this to make sure the people reading this letter that were sitting in this church together in the city of Rome understand how dire the situation is as they might even be thinking in their heads as he goes through the list, thinking, yeah, but, but what about, but, but Paul, what about this? And so he gets to one more part here in Romans 2 uh, that continues to encourage us uh, in understanding this, and that it's actually good news because it reminds us uh, of the one who does come and make things right. 
Um, so that's our hope today is to continue thinking about that. One more angle looking at it, maybe one more way for our hearts to be uh, encouraged, our hearts to maybe, maybe take a little stock. What is going on in my heart, in my head? What is my motivation? Where am I in this? And so we're in Romans 2. Uh, Romans 2 has switched. The first part at the end of Romans 1 uh, seems to be talking to Gentiles, people who are not Jewish people about the way they've turned from God. And in Romans 2, it seems to switch where now it says, but you, seeming that he's talking now to the Jewish people there who may think just because they're Jewish, just because God ha- has made them these, this people that they get off with not having to deal with this, they, that they don't have to worry about some of these sin issues. And he wants to remind them, no, we're all kind of, we're all in the same boat here. Um, and so in, in Romans 2 here, he continues talking about that. He starts with that, and uh, here's going to continue to give another angle here. I think one that um, is going to be important as we think about uh, Palm Sunday. So let's read this together. This is Romans 2. I'll just read it. All the, the passages will be up on the screen, otherwise you can follow along in your Bible. This is from Romans 2, uh, starting at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For in Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a lot, lot there. Let's try to quick uh, unpack it a little bit so we at least know generally here what Paul's trying to say. Here are the first few verses here. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So what he's talking about here is when he says the law, he's talking about these things that God has brought down. He's, he's actually come to his people, this chosen people, the Jewish people, and he said, this is the way I want you to live. This is the, actually the way of life is this thing. And he's given them this law. We're going to look at that moment here in a moment. Um, he says, so I've actually, I've actually shown you what it looks like. I've actually said, hey, this is what I've created you for. Um, and so I've given you that. You know what, what you should be doing. And so you're going to be judged by that. You know, and you're not necessarily doing that. He says here in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous. Not just because you heard it, not just because I told you this, that now you're great. But the doers, the people actually heard it and then like it's actually happening. You're actually, you're actually doing what I've called you to do. You'll be the ones who are justified. You'll be the ones who are made right. And he says, so there is this difference, right? There's Jewish people, the people chosen by God who've been given this law many, many years ago and have lived with that for many years. And then there's people who have not been given this. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, he's saying there's actually Gentiles, though people who aren't Jews, who still actually live in, in a way God has called them to. Actually, there's some things they do. It's like built into us in our conscience, right? That we just know that there's some things that are right and wrong. And so that they will be judged by that. So he's, this whole section in Romans, he's saying, Hey, there's, there, there is this way that God has called us to live and we're, we're not doing it. And so we're, we're disobedient, we're turning away and there's a consequence to that. And there's a consequence to slapping the creator of the universe in the face, turning from him, being disobedient and that's death. It's the wrath of God. And it's, it's coming. In fact, the passage before this is like, you're storing that up. And they might say, yeah, but you gave us the law. We're, the, you're, you're, we're your people, 
We're God's people. You can't say this. Yeah, but you'll also be judged, but you're not doing it either. And these Gentiles weren't even given it. And, and they still, at times, are following it. So generally, right, overall here he's saying, there's, you've been given the law and I don't see it happening. They weren't even given the law and sometimes they're doing it, right? And all this you're saying, oh, they're, they're really terrible. We're really great. And you're saying maybe you're great because you think, well, God told us the rules, so we're really great. Well, you're not doing the rules. That doesn't necessarily mean, I maybe have had this happen in my house before where I say, you weren't listening. And that kid will say, hypothetically, my child might say, oh, I heard you. I just didn't do it. I was like, oh. I would say like, well, this is the consequence for not listening. And they'll say, no, I was listening, dad. It's different. And he'll go, oh, you're right. You're right. Well, then the consequences for not doing. And this is where... I think Paul is trying to encourage these people and say, hey, you maybe have created or you're misunderstanding the purpose of this law. I didn't give this to you to like signal to the world, oh, these are my people and, uh, and they can do whatever they want. These are my people and those aren't my people. And so he wants to, um, Paul is trying to encourage them, hey, I really want you to understand that you're, you're in really in the same boat here you're both really in trouble because he really wants them to know how good it is that God did not leave them there. And if they're thinking, I'm fine, I'm good, then they're not gonna even accept or understand or even want to kneel to Jesus. He wants them to understand that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God to restore things and not them. I think that's what we're hoping. That's what I'm hoping to get at today. I want to take us through a quick journey of how we got to Palm Sunday. I think Palm Sunday is a, is a moment where we're going to get to see uh, how this actually plays out in real time. What does it look like to be people who maybe think, but we had the law, we're, we're special people. Uh, and even maybe that's why Jesus came because he just really wants to be with us. And so I, I want to look at Palm Sunday today how we got to Palm Sunday, how we get to a place where Jesus comes into town and people are, are chanting and screaming. They're excited he's there. Hosanna, the king is here. And what do they mean by that maybe? And what does it look like? We get a little picture of that. But first we're gonna go way back so we understand. I, I, I hope we have a lot of grace actually for these people. And I hope, um, I've, I've developed more grace in reading Romans, uh, understanding how much I myself uh, I could put myself in the place uh, of these Jewish people, of these people who have Jewish heritage, who are now followers of Christ, who Paul's saying, you're still putting a lot of stock in this. You're still holding on to this thing and saying, yeah, but this is why God, why we're better or why God has chosen me because of, just because of this, it makes me right with God. Because of this, uh, I'm good and not necessarily in Christ. And I think it is a long, long history that we're going to look at. And I think, and, and Palm Sunday helps us see some of that. So the story, as we look at the story of the scripture, it's helpful to see it uh, kind of maybe in these, in these ways. I found these new images. I kind of like them. Um, as God creates the world, he creates a good world with people where things are all connected and they're with him. They're unified. People are worshiping him and not creation, but they're caring for creation. They're enjoying creation, but the creator God is with them and they're enjoying each other. They worship God alone. They take care of the world. And then the fall comes where people turn from God. We've looked at this story a few times already in, in Romans. Uh, 
where they're deceived, right? They believe a lie that maybe God doesn't actually mean what he says. Maybe he's not telling the truth. Maybe God is trying to hog all the glory and you should get some. Maybe we don't even need God. And so they actually do the thing that God asks them not to. God says, uh, kind of the original law, right? They, he says, there's one thing I'd like you to not do is, is eat from this tree. It actually will hurt you. You'll actually die. And, they, and the snake convinces them, maybe you won't. And so they, they believe that and they, and they actually act on that and they turn from God, realizing we actually do need him. He actually is all we need. And they walk uh, away out of this place from being in creation away in the fall. And then we see in the storyline, there's redemption that's coming as we get to celebrate this week as Christ has come. And eventually one day we get to see restoration as all things are made right. But God's creation continues this pattern of turning, of running from him. Sin, sin is consuming people in the world. And there's story after story of this happening as we see in scripture. And we see story after story of God continuing to pursue his people, continuing to give them grace, continuing to give them other chances to turn to him. And in the process, he, create, he sends a guy uh, named Abraham, uh, who's actually kind of an outsider to make these people. And he says, I'm going to make my family through you. And he says, uh, my family's going to be a family that I'm going to bless, and they're going to be a blessing to the world. This is really a, a kind of a core value of what God has made us for. Just like in creation, I made this Adam and Eve, and I said, hey, you now get to bless and care for the world. And he said, that's still my plan. I'm going to make a family, and these people are going to bless the world. I'm going to fill them. They're going to be, their cup is going to be overflowing, and that's going to be an opportunity to care for the world and bring good news and ultimately bring people back to the one who brings life. He chooses these people. He shows them to the world. His people, though, continue. They still have this disease. They're still sick, and they continue to turn from the true God, the true living God to other gods or to themselves. He continues to bless them, and at times they bless the world around them. At times they turn to him, and many times they turn away. And they find themselves eventually enslaved. Actually, like physically, their people group in Egypt, now being used by the Pharaoh and the leader there to uh, work for them. Many years, God's people are there enslaved. It's this great picture of like a physical reality describing an actual like even more real spiritual reality. You see that all over scripture. Old Testament has these great images for us where God's people are under the authority, right? Are, are enslaved by this Pharaoh and people. And really we know that even within them, right? Spiritually, their hearts and their minds are also enslaved by sin. They turn away. They find themselves in this reality. And so God comes again, and this is a, such a critical story for us to understand and a story that um, leads to the, to the identity of these Jewish people for, still to this day, a huge part of their identity. They're enslaved by Pharaoh and his people and God comes to them and says, I want to rescue you. I get a moment where God physically is going to rescue them in the story of the Exodus, but also it's a picture for us to know there's a much greater reality spiritually God will rescue us and rescues his people. So he comes to the rescue. After nine plagues, he takes the, the uh, Egyptians have kind of these 10 main gods that have these powers for them that they feel like have these, and God comes and says, no, no, I'm the true God. 
I'm the true power over all these things. And so you have a God who uh, is, it comes in the form of a frog and has these powers. Well, guess what? I actually control the frogs. And you have a God who actually controls, is the river and controls the river. Actually, I control the river. And so for nine plagues, God shows, I'm actually the true God to the Egyptian people. He uses Moses, uh, a man, to say, hey, you should let my people go. Our, our God is asking for our people to go, and the Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. And so finally, he says, I have a 10th plague, a 10th way I'm gonna show my power. And so he actually tells the people, his people here, right? He says, uh, I want you to slaughter a lamb, an innocent, unblemished lamb, and I want you to take its blood and I want you to put it on the doorposts of your door. You probably heard this is a classic story, right? Uh, if, you, if you read some Old Testament, this is a pretty big deal. He says, put the blood on the door because I'll know that the blood of an innocent lamb was shed and I'll know then that you're my people. This blood will mark you. It will signal to, to me that when death comes tonight, it will pass over your home. So you can sit safely in your home and death will pass over you. But death will come to the firstborn of other homes. Those who have not turned to me. What a, what a pretty intense thing to have happened, right? And so God's people do, they, they uh, slaughter a lamb and they put the blood on their doorposts and that night death comes and death takes the firstborn of many. And as they sit in their homes, death passes over them. This is a big deal because Pharaoh himself is a firstborn and for them the firstborn uh, is significant. There's great power in there. There's a, a heritage in there. In fact, Pharaoh is even considered a god himself. Uh, he's considered to be Horus and he's, a, he's like a god and he's a man. He's kind of the connection between the godly. He's like the son of the gods in a way. And so by killing a firstborn, you're in a way even saying I'm more powerful than, than your great firstborn. Your great Pharaoh. And so this, this um, sets them free. Pharaoh says, you can go, go, go. And so they don't even have time. They have to leave so quick, they don't have time to even let their bread rise. Uh, I love this part of the story. It just it really indicates how quickly this hell had to happen. God's people leave with this unleavened bread. Blood on those doors as they head out the doors. So Pharaoh allows them to leave, but then as they're leaving, he decides, I still want these people. Whether it's he wants them to come back to actually continue to work for him, that's a lot of workforce, or maybe there's just also, I, I don't know if I want these people to live. These people have devastated, their God and their people have devastated us here through these plagues. And so he continues, God continues to guide his people through the desert uh, and eventually corners them between like a mountain, a rock, and a hard place, right? And a sea. They're stuck. So they get to this point again where they go like, we're stuck again, God. You rescued us from this thing and now we're stuck again. And Pharaoh's army actually is coming to get them and they are literally in a place and there's a moment which happens over and over with God's people where they say, God, you just bring us here to die? Instead of dying there, we're just gonna die here next to this, this water? As the Pharaohs are, are we, what, what are we gonna do? And again, like, like a miracle that God can do, he rescues them again from something that seems impossible he rescues them and he opens the waterway and people are rescued from what seems to be death coming. They now are freed from it. 
grace upon grace, right? And as Pharaoh's army chases them into the waterway, the water crashes over them. So not only has God rescued them from this death on one side, but has brought them through and now even taken care of the enemy. What an amazing moment, right? As, as death crashes over and destroys Pharaoh's army, God's people have grace crashing over them as again, it wasn't that long before they had just been rescued out of slavery and now God again rescues them and they can head home away from the enslavement, away from death, rescued by a faithful God. And then they stop at this mountain with Moses, their leader. And Moses says, I'm going to go to the mountain. God is going to talk to me. He's going to tell us what he wants from us. He's going to give us his law. So this is where we get some of this. So he goes up, played by Charleston Heston here. I love this picture. It looks so fake. Look at that beard. Uh, He goes up and actually is given the law. He's given what what we think of as the Ten Commandments. God doesn't call them the Ten Commandments, but he gives them these, this law. He says, this is, what I want. this is how I want you to live. This is how I want God's people to live with a whole bunch of other ways. These are the things I want you to do. I'm gonna ask you to do. And Moses comes down from the mountain, and while he was in the mountain, God's people had been building a golden calf. They were just rescued again and again, right? And they went, let's do something to worship a God that will give us something. It's just, it's just built in, right? This built in of like, let's do this thing and maybe it'll make us right. Maybe it'll bring, up, bring about uh, a God's power or a God's kingdom in our own lives. This is what, uh, at least the beginning of some of the law, some of what God gave to Moses. And uh, Martin Luther says this is, you know, critical. This first, um, we call the first of the 10 commandments. It really is what frames the rest of the commandments. And if you're thinking about Romans now, this might even bring more light to this. This is what God says to me. He says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You should worship the creator, the one true God. It doesn't seem that wild, right? He, he just, I just showed you that I'm more powerful than those gods that the Egyptians thought were real. That shouldn't be hard. You shall make yourself, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeliness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth below, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This sort of sums up Romans 1 for us. I... I am the true God. Life is going to come and worship to me, turning to me. And, I'll, and then not anything else, whether it's a created thing from heaven, earth, or under the water, anywhere. Don't turn to those things. As he's saying this, God's people are down creating a golden statue to turn to. What a moment. You wonder if Moses even thought that later. He thought, huh. As I was sitting there with God, being reminded this is the one thing and out of this will flow the do not kill and the do not commit adultery, the do not covet. Out of those will flow as I first turn to the one true God. So Moses does come down. He's pretty upset that this is happening. This is a photograph from that moment. The lightning strikes. <laughs> he holds those up. He is not a happy man. But again, we kind of see this. Do you see the same thing happening within these people? This 
But now they have something new. It's not just we turn from God, we turn from God, he comes and rescues us, we turn from God. But now like, hey, he's given us kind of a set of rules, this law. Okay, so we just do this stuff and then everything's good. This stuff, and then we can bring about this kingdom of God. This stuff, he's just given them a list to, to partake in. Part of that was God called them to do something that's really important. It's something we do in the same way, in the same kind of heart every week while we gather. Do things to meet and remember who God is and what he's done. It's essentially, right, to continue to put your faith in. He, he says to do something uh, called the Day of Atonement. Uh, or if you heard of like the holiday Yom Kippur, uh, it's a day where, where the priests would come and they would lay the sins of the people on a goat and on a lamb. It's a really cool symbol. Again, like a physical expression of something spiritual. They would lay the sins, they would say the sins of God's people are on this goat and they would send the goat off into isolation. It's the scapegoat. Literally, that's where it's from. They would send the goat off. So the sin you get a visual, right? They're getting a real visual, an experience of this. Is, it's the great object lesson, right? That they get, God says, do this thing where they send them off because sin causes you to be isolated. It causes you to be cast out. And then I want you to take a lamb and do the same thing. This lamb is actually going to be slaughtered and killed. An innocent lamb's blood will be shed. To remind you that sin casts you out in a way. It isolates you're away from God's people and sin also brings death. What an image, right? Do this over and over. And also I want you to meet together and celebrate the Passover. When God, when death passed over you, when the blood of a lamb uh, was put on your doors, not the blood that did it, but it indicated you're my people and I passed over you. So do this thing, gather together and celebrate these things. Reminding you what death, what sin does and also reminding you what I do, that I rescue you, that I come when you're enslaved and I rescue you. And this becomes a long, long tradition. And for many, many, many years still today, Jewish people gather and they say, we're gonna get together for the Passover. Remember that moment when God rescued us from slavery. Remember when Pharaoh's army was coming and then we thought we were stuck and then he made a way through the water and he rescued us and he took care of the enemy. What an incredible day. This is such an important core part of our identity. And they're gonna gather and they're gonna do this over and over, year after year. They're gonna eat together. This is a this is a, a picture of a Seder meal. It's something they gather in all the parts of the meal. There's unleavened bread. Remember that? The bread didn't have time to rise. There's, there's blood. There's wine representing blood that was shed. All the parts remind them of moments in the history, in that, that story that's part of their identity. And they would go on to have kings and leaders and judges, people who would lead them. And they would all be, all be part of this history where they would still gather most of the time and they would some of the time, and they would remember that God are the, is the one who rescued them. And they would gather to, to do this ritual to remember that what sin does to us. I think in the hopes that by doing these things that God has given them, it would not separate them and say, you're, you're more important, you're more special, and you're the ones I'm going to save, but it would remind them this is what sin does. It separates you, it kills you, and remember I'm the one who comes and rescues you from that. Remember, I, turn to me. I'm the one true God. But instead, I think just, just as we would do, and we do, 
we turn those into, I think if we follow these well enough, we'll be better. And we can also look at the people who don't follow them and go, look at those people. They, what are they doing? They're not following these laws. They aren't following this religion like they should. And over time, year after year, this happens over and over and your identity starts becoming how well you follow these things and not how well these remind you of the one who actually rescues you. This isn't like a very foreign concept, right? You, God gives us something and then we, as, as fast as we can at times, turn into the thing that makes us who we are, the thing that brings life to us. Uh, in terms of a Palm Sunday or Easter time, the thing that we might think actually brings in the kingdom of God, if I can just do these things, all will be right in the world. If I can just get this done, if I can follow these things, all will be right. And if they don't follow these things, then, then all isn't right. So it, it becomes those things to us. Well, that happens for many, 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 many years. And so you, that builds a new identity. For generations, kids grow up and some of those things fade and they, uh, God's people actually become exiled because of their sin. They're actually taken from their home kind of and other people rule over them and they're split up. Their sin has actually cast them out. It's continued to bring death. There's actually uh, religious groups, religious leaders, different sects of their group that, that break in and decide how they think the kingdom of God is going to come, whether it's for following the rules or whether it's a great warrior who's going to come and literally overthrow the government there at all, becomes very much centered and very much our eyes become off of our God and, and onto uh, people. It, and still trying to worship God, but I think over time, right, all those traditions and all those things continue to build and build. And many generations in, you wonder, do we remember why that first was there? Is this thing actually pointing, this thing actually could be really good, would point us to that our need for a God has become the thing that, that we think actually gets us to God. And so this moment happens uh, right before Palm Sunday. This moment where all these people are gathering, it's the season of Passover. So people are coming from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They're coming together to celebrate for a week and it's gonna culminate in this time where they're gonna have a meal together and they're gonna remember how God rescued them from slavery, how God defeated the enemy. And they're all there, they're all, there's extra people in town and this guy named Jesus comes to town because uh, his, um, we know he has lots planned, but he comes initially here as he meets Martha and Mary, because their brother has died. Their brother named Lazarus, who Jesus loves dearly, and he comes into town as Lazarus has been put in a tomb already, and people are weeping, and he comes to them and weeps with them. So that where we get the passage, Jesus wept. He, he's with them, he's caring for them, and he tells them something really important. They say, why didn't you come before you could have saved him? And he says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the one who brings life. And then he raises him from the dead. This is an incredible story. Lazarus comes to life and, and people cheer and people are excited. They go from mourning their friend's death to life. What an amazing picture. They don't even know it's coming a week later. It's like an opening act to an even greater resurrection. This happens and then Jesus rides into town on Palm Sunday. They didn't call it Palm Sunday. Uh, we do, right? <laughs> He rides into town, his great triumphal entry on a donkey, comes into town, and people are excited. This is the guy who just made someone rise from the dead. 
This is the guy who for years has been doing miracles, has been healing people, has been talking in a way that's different, has been, has been hanging out with sinners. They get very excited. So we see in John what happens. The next day, the large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's great, it's great prophecy that he'll come on a donkey. They're cheering, they're laying down their palm branches. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when he raises from the dead, right, he eventually ascends to heaven, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Later, right, at the moment, they weren't even necessarily sure what's going on. The crowd that had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Those people were there, this is the guy. You have to imagine him turning to friends. This is the guy who raised, who raised Lazarus from the dead. Just yesterday. This is incredible. Who is this guy? Who is he? What's he going to do? Is he the one who's going to rescue us? The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Of course, I mean, if, you, if word gets out that Lazarus died and then he rose from the dead, I want to go see the guy who did this. The Pharisees too are there. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They have already started to plot to kill him. They don't like that he's come. He's going to take power from them. People are turning even from them and their wisdom to, to Jesus. There's a, there's a threat there to their own power. There's a threat I'm sure they think, this, this guy doesn't seem to line up with what we think is what God wants. As a good religious leader, as a good pastor would, you'd say, hey, be careful. I know you're really excited about that guy on TikTok, but could you, let's pump the brakes maybe and Let's think about what he's actually saying or what that means. He, he seems way out of orthodoxy here. At least what they're, what they're believing is what, this is what it's supposed to be. And so we get kind of different groups here. The disciples didn't understand at the moment what it meant for him to be called a king. But they did later. Right as he rose from the dead, they went, oh, not, not like he's going to be in charge of the state we live in, but like, that kind of king? Is he just going to be like a really good Jewish man who finally lives the life he's supposed to? Is this the guy who's finally going to do all the law right so that then like God will be super happy and usher in his kingdom? They didn't, they didn't understand me that until later. Oh, he meant like he's going to usher in the kingdom. Like the capital T, T capital K kingdom. There's people who came because of the spectacle of Lazarus. Probably to see a promised king. Think of the many, many, many generations of the story after story and them thinking back to like King David and these great kings. When will God send us a king again who could overpower these Romans and these people so that we again could be in charge? And then these leaders who do not like him saying things like they need a doctor to heal them that everyone has an opportunity to be into God's family. He doesn't seem to be following the rules. He doesn't seem to be bringing in the kind of kingdom of God that they want. I think in a way people are looking for a, a really, a guru, a master, right? A person who could be the ultimate, they could follow him and he would bring about 
maybe like a physical, like right here, this world, and, and their eyes and their hearts weren't able to see. He's bringing in a whole different kingdom. He's gonna do all of it. He's bringing in a way greater exodus. They maybe didn't understand why Jesus was coming, but on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes to say, I'm ushering in a kingdom, and it's not through the law like you think it is. It's gonna be through my death and my resurrection. This image, I think, is helpful for maybe how they were thinking or feeling. There's, there's lots of different maybe moments, for, depending on who the people are, though. They didn't know why he had come. Um, anyone notice a difference from last time? Yes, oh, good work. 10 points, you get 10 points for that. Add that to your Bible uh, score. Uh, they're flipped now, do you notice? The, I got to use a little bit of my graphic design degree here. Little props, it's worth paying off those two loans. Uh, uh, this time, the procession goes this way. Now, this is actually how it originally went in, when they first started it in Moscow. When they first started it, uh, actually, they took like the, one of the bishops, one of the head religious leaders, and he rode the donkey, the horse, representing Jesus, and he was actually led by the, the, the government leaders as a way for them to show we actually are leading, as if we're leading like Christ, from the center of power and commerce, like from the Kremlin to the great church as a symbol of uh, we're now we're walking with Jesus to worship him. That was the kind of some of the imagery, at least in the beginning. And then it changed. And then uh, there was a czar who said, I, I don't like that. I actually, I think I'd like to ride the horse <laughs> and I'd like the procession to end at my palace. So what a moment, right? A, a physical reality showing a very spiritual reality. I, I like, I'm fine with it starting at the religious center here, uh, and I'd like to be led through the city, and I'd like it to end in my palace. I think this image is a lot more maybe of what we're seeing on Palm Sunday. They're excited Jesus is here, and I think they're hoping he would march his way to the palace to the center of power, and he would say, no, I'm in charge now, and then they would get to be in charge. And God would come and say, Jesus would come and he would say, no, no, the Jewish people now are the ones who get to be in power. They're the ones who get to make money. They're the ones who get to maybe tell you what to do. They're the ones who've been following this religion and this law, and now they get to be in charge. They're no longer exiled. They're the ones who, now this is going to be called the, the Hebrew nation. It's going to be called Israel and not the Roman nation. I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God as in the kingdom of Israel. It might be more of what, I, I think that because that's what I want. I want Jesus to come in and usher in so that I can be in charge. My people can be in charge. So our people can be in charge of things. I'm not thinking like kingdom, capital K, kingdom. I'm just thinking right here. And God's saying, no, no, there's a way bigger kingdom here. And you're not ushering it in by following these rules. And so right after this, Jesus gathers for a Passover meal with his people and they remember the Exodus. But this time in remembering it, he says, I'm gonna be the lamb. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. And this time isn't just a, an opportunity to remember that you, you're sinful and what sin does is an actually an opportunity for me to pay for your sins once and for all. It's not a one time we're gonna pay 
uh, here, and then we're all going to sin, and we're going to have to do this again, but we're going to do it once for all. I will free us from the slavery of sin and death for all. Religion has failed us. I have not. And he will go to a cross. We'll celebrate that on Good Friday, and he will rise from the dead. We'll celebrate on Easter. So consider this one more time here. In Romans, as Paul is explaining this, you might think, come on, you got the law. It should have encouraged you to worship Jesus. God gave you this great responsibility and you could go and be blessed and bless so many others and draw them in. I think we're in the same place, right? We think we could follow the rules. We could create a religion uh, in our lives that will bring about the kingdom of God. I think my devotion to something, the rules I set up will just make everything right or at least will put me in the place of power. And it doesn't make us whole. It doesn't atone for our sins or make them right. It doesn't rescue us from death like I hope. Paul's saying, friends, I know we do this over and over. It doesn't rescue us, right? It hasn't rescued us. There's only one who's come and he's gonna rescue us. He has rescued us. I think we have this tension, right? We still want to kind of live in both of those. And I think the people in this church he's talking to are the same. Uh, Tony Evans has this great story about this. This is a very not true story. You'll find out in a minute why. But he talks about the story of this woman who married a guy named Jeff. He makes a list. Uh, Jeff makes a list of things for her to do. Uh, and she happily does these things because she's certain if she does the list just right every day, then one day she will be happy and Jeff will be happy. And then they'll have a happy marriage. So from every day as she wakes up, every day she goes to bed, and in between she does the list. She follows the list every day trying to make Jeff happy, which will then make them happy. It'll make them a happy house. Jeff doesn't seem to ever really get happy, but she keeps doing it, hoping one day she'll be happy and her loving husband will be happy And tragedy strikes, and Jeff passes away. She's devastated, but she doesn't necessarily know what to do, so she just keeps doing this list, hoping it could bring happiness, hoping that maybe just part of the pattern of life, too, she just keeps doing it. They give her a purpose. It gives her something to move towards. Maybe Jeff was on to something. It must bring life. It must bring happiness. I'll keep doing it. And she eventually takes a break, and she takes a trip to Europe which is in Europe, she meets a handsome British man. I'll call him Nigel. <laughs> that's a British guy. He's got that accent. He's irresistible. And she marries Nigel. He's a loving man who loves her deeply and cares for her. He has not given her a list. He just asks for her devotion, her faithfulness. Can you be faithful to me and try to love me and I'll do the same? And she says yes. And so she marries him. They decide to move back to her home Uh, after her trip, she's got her new hunky husband, Nigel, with her. He loves her deeply. Doesn't require this list for happiness, just a devotion and a love. And they move back in her house and they open the door, they fling it open, he's carrying her into their house. She's thrilled. And to his surprise, there's a taxidermied Jeff on a lazy boy in the living room. And he says, what is that? And she says, that's Jeff. (laughs) That's my, 
it was my husband, and I, I just can't let him go. So I had this done on the black market, I assume. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine, he says, ah, uh, we should talk quick about this. So I, I just still need Jeff there. I couldn't bury Jeff. I, I get it. I, I'm devoted to you, but I still want Jeff around, and I'm still going to try to keep doing his stuff, keep following his rules, hoping that it will bring happiness. Nigel says, I don't want to live in the house with Jeff. <laughs> and, or the lazy boy. <laughs> right? So Tony Evans says this, we've been living based on a rule-based approach to the Christian life. I'd say he's, uh, he's actually referring to this passage. Uh, he says, or as Paul's talking to these Jewish people as well. And then we meet Jesus Christ and somebody told us that we were free. You're free now. But we're bringing Jesus Christ to live in our lives without dealing with bearing old Jeff. Jesus will not live in a house with a dead man still calling the shots. It's not that the law is bad. Legalism doesn't seek to do away with the rules. However, legalism refers to a wrong viewpoint about the rules. It expects a list to do what a list can never do. You're saying legalism is us uh, following the rules in order to get approval from God, following the rules in order to bring in the kingdom of God. And that's, I think that's what Paul is encouraging them to do, and this is what I would encourage us today. We want to follow those rules. The law isn't bad except when we're using the law for what it's not made for, which is bring about a devoted, faithful husband who loves us dearly, a God who loves us dearly. We feel this all the time, I think, in our lives. We set up rules and we become doers of things hoping we can bring about the kingdom of God in our lives. Hoping that we will usher in utopia or paradise or even just okayness. And it's exhausting. Really quick, I found a blog post from uh, racketminnesota.com. It tells us rules for how to behave in the Twin Cities. Here's a few of the rules. Oh, wow, look at all these. It's okay to be passive aggressive. Uh, ain't nothing wrong with a little small talk about the weather, right? Don't treat Minnesota as a monolith. Okay, I can do that. Keep a few dollar bills in your pocket in case someone asks for a buck. Okay, I can do that. Tall people must be conscious of the other heights at shows. That's the First Avenue answer. Uh, kids are, and dogs are okay at breweries and restaurants if they're on their best behavior. Oh, there's more. Do not invite yourself to someone's cabin. It's okay to do that, right? Don't be a jerk in the laundry room. Whoever wrote this list, like, this was just their week, is what I feel like. People are allowed to park in front of your house, you weirdo. Wow, how many posts online are people complaining about parking in front of their house? A dog who barks and lunges at people as they pass when fenced in is an okay dog to leave out unsupervised. That seems like a very specific moment, right? Next door is annoying. Yes, it's okay to teach a driver's ed deficient motorist a lesson on the highway. A lesson? <laughs> It goes on and on and on. Oh, I didn't mention there's actually 56 of these rules to behave in the Twin Cities. I'm tired. That wears me out. I start, this is though, right? I think over and over we're doing this. We're feeling this. There's, we got to do stuff. We do stuff and we're going to usher in the kingdom of God. If I do all these things and I will behave right in the Twin Cities, am I doing them? Am I doing it right? Is someone seeing me do it wrong? Did I just hurt somebody? Do I care? Do I even agree with them? 
I think those, those are things that I th- say, oh, okay, yeah, this is kind of fun maybe. I assume it's just for fun. Uh, but that, that's, not the, that's not the purpose of the law. It's not the purpose of what God commands us to do is not to call us to be weary and exhausted, but instead he calls us to rest in him because Jesus has done the work. And as we end here, I'm gonna call the band up here. We're gonna take some time to worship that. God, I want you to hear uh, in Revelation how the kind of great Palm Sunday happens. This moment happens again to remind us of how good this is that we don't have to live in that life of lists, of religion that fails us, but can live in the one of the God who ushered in the kingdom of God. After this, I looked. This is Revelation, end of scripture. This is talking about what it looks like. There after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count for every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. There's a lamb on a throne, and everyone's there. It's a big group, not just, not just Jewish people coming for Passover, but all people are there before this lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. That's cool. The king now is not on a donkey riding and he is on his throne. And they're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The ultimate lamb, the great lamb, the better lamb who was slain. For our sin, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and all four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They worshiped this lamb who was slain so that they could have life. And finally we hear, and then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? And I answered, sir, you know, these are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This is interesting. They're wearing white robes that were washed in blood. So now this blood from this lamb no longer paints doorposts red, but the blood from this lamb cleanses us, purifies us, makes us whole. This king who came in on a donkey was worshiped with palm branches. They didn't even realize the kingdom he was bringing in, what he's done, which allows us to not bring in the kingdom of God. We're not bringing the kingdom back. Jesus already has. And he's ushering his people to glory. Now we get to join that parade in ushering him one day to glory to his kingdom. We, We don't have to usher in the kingdom of God. It's been done. We get to join the one who has done it. That's good news. That's really good news. A couple things to consider here as we continue to worship together. We're going to sing together. We're going to take communion out in the hallways. There's an opportunity to take communion. This great uh, meal that was first shown to us by Jesus uh, as kind of the new, better Passover meal. And remembering his body broken, his body that bled. Uh, We'll also have opportunity to pray. There are people in the back of the room who would love to pray for you couple things to consider. Do you know Jesus did the work to bring the kingdom of God to us? Maybe you don't. Today's the day to say, yeah, I believe that. Put faith in that. That is what it looks like for us to believe the gospel, to turn to God. When you're trying to, uh, when are you trying to bring the kingdom of God without Jesus? Where, where does it look like? Where's, where have you created religion in your life 
that you think will bring about what God actually can bring? Do you find rest? Who do you find rest with? Who allows you to rest in Jesus? I think this, this life of religion and, and law is a very exhausting life. I think many times I'm almost encouraged by others to have the side hustle and who allows you just to rest, to be broken and to point you to Jesus and maybe who this week are you gonna meet that needs to know that there is great freedom. Someone has come to free us. Let's, let me pray for us and we'll sing. Together, Lord, thank you for your goodness today, your kindness towards us that we can gather and remember like for many, many, many years people have gathered to remember your goodness your kindness. Remember that sin brings death and casts us out and that you rescue us and bring us in. Make us whole again. Clean us. I pray today we'd be people who come to you just wrecked, weary, exhausted, and you would give us life. And we would not be people who feel that we have to clean it up, but that we can come to you as ourselves. I pray this uh, over us as we worship now together, we sing these words together. Thank you that we can gather together in your name. Amen.